Hello and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. I'm your host, Charles Hecker, bringing you clear insight every two weeks in an age of increasingly dynamic risk and intensifying connectivity. Today, we're discussing civil unrest and social activism, issues central to the concept of political risk and topics that we at Control Risks monitor, measure, and rate on an almost daily basis. We paid quite a lot of attention to activism in 2019, when we saw a world quite literally convulsed by outbreaks of activism spanning the globe from Santiago, Chile to Hong Kong and stopping off almost everywhere in between. While the pandemic has to a large extent interrupted these outbreaks, it has also exacerbated the unrest that fuels them. As the world recovers from the pandemic, we at Control Risks believe that even though many protests are currently aimed at government institutions and individuals, they will soon also be aimed in equal fervor at companies, how they treated their employees, their customers, their suppliers, and their broader communities during the pandemic. Joining us today to share their expertise and examine the most important concerns for business emerging from global activism are three of my colleagues. Let's say hello to Pratyush Rao, who's joining us from Delhi. Quite excited to be on this podcast for what should be a very interesting discussion ahead. Joining us from our Sao Paulo office, we've got Leandro Lima, one of our analysts for the Southern Cone. Leandro has in particular been focused on developments in Chile. Hey, Chuck. I'm glad to be here. Joining from Washington, D.C. is our lead U.S. analyst, Jonathan Wood. Jonathan's also our deputy global research director and a member of our global issues team. Hi, Chuck. Thanks very much. Jonathan, can you give us some context for the protests over police brutality and systemic racism that have erupted across the U.S. and the world over previous weeks, both in terms of the pandemic and the broader narrative of activism? We witnessed some of the most unprecedented scenes in a major U.S. city in more than 30 years. And we've seen that scene replicated around the country in terms of the deployment of heavily armed police, National Guard, and in the case of D.C., active duty military personnel. And I think it's worth questioning exactly how much these protests are linked both to those underlying drivers that you identify and also to the backdrop of this continuing COVID-19 crisis, which in our own analysis, we've generally seen as something that is likely to support social unrest and protest going forward. Now, these protests, as I think everyone will appreciate, have reflected deep underlying grievances, some of which are historical and some of which, when it comes to the deaths of George Floyd and Ahmad Arbery and Breonna Taylor, are much more recent and raw. And if anything, what has changed, it seems, from a set of similar protests that occurred you know, five or six years ago, is that there is now less tolerance for the heavy-handed, challenging response of city, state, and federal authorities. And what I mean by that is, in this case, these protests are not just occurring against the background of systemic racism or police brutality or the differential impacts of socioeconomic opportunity in the U.S., but they are occurring against the very specific impacts of COVID-19, which have generally hit major U.S. cities harder, have disproportionately impacted minority and low-income communities, 
And against that backdrop, we do have a really combustible situation, a latent driver of social unrest and activism merging with some very significant stressors, which have brought people out into the street. And when it comes to COVID-19 in particular, one of the interesting things going forward will be that probably toxic interplay between these demonstrations, these mass demonstrations involving hundreds or thousands of people in close proximity, and the process that the U.S. is trying to go through of both reopening its economy while also maintaining some public health measures. And I think in this case, the protests themselves will probably set both of those back in the coming weeks. Jonathan, how does this blend in, if you will, or, or, or layer on top of the other issues, the other drivers of, of activism and protest? I mean, was the U.S. the scene of protracted public displeasure with issues like income inequality? Or were people protesting about gender representation on corporate boards? And you know, what's the state of climate activism in the US? And, and what were they like before the pandemic? And what do you think they'll be like after the pandemic? Since 2016, 2017, there's been a fairly sustained activist movement on a range of fronts. Climate change is a big one, immigration policy, gun control. And in each of these areas, we've seen large, in some cases, unprecedented nonviolent demonstrations involving students, employees, workers, and other different groups. Many of these larger mass protest movements had really been disrupted by the need to reconfigure activist and protest tactics for an era of social distancing. And I think to some degree, these most recent anti-police and anti-police brutality demonstrations across the U.S., you know, they signal that while some of that protest activity on climate change, on corporate accountability, on gender equity had moved into the digital realm, you know, many movements still see a lot of value in physical street-level protests as a way of gaining attention and gaining policy-making attention as well. And I think the test will come in the coming months if we do see meaningful initiatives on things like police reform that address these protesters' demands. If we do see those things, it will likely reinforce that idea that mass protests can bring about social change, maybe even be necessary to bring about social change. If we don't see those initiatives emerging, and there's certainly a very real chance of that in a U.S. election year where everything's being relentlessly politicized, you know, then we may look at activists pursuing some of those trends and tactics that we had perceived as of last year in the U.S., in particular focusing on companies and their reputation, um, using more creative methods online to expose or release information that might be derogatory to different organizations. Um, and, and I think that there may be a realization or, or at least a, a sense that we, that activists need to evolve their methods in an era of pervasive digital communication, in an era where mass protests are maybe more difficult to sustain for public health reasons, and, and maybe in an era where those mass protests no longer have the impact that activists would like. 
Jonathan, I want to jump around a little bit, but before we do that, um, just one last thing about activism in the United States, and, and I think this is an area where the U.S. perhaps leads the crowd, and that is the expectation of civil society and of, of, of activism, the expectation that companies will take some sort of lead here in responding to these issues. And, and, and that may be because government can't or won't legislate or is too slow to act, doesn't speak with one voice, but Americans expect their companies to take stands on public issues these days. How does that frame the picture for business? Well, that's been a really interesting part of these demonstrations currently sweeping the U.S. Many major companies have issued statements via social media, especially expressing sympathy or solidarity with the protests, trying to reassure their own employees about their commitment to diversity and related issues in the workplace. And so that signaling is working in both directions. It's both to sustain their brand position in the marketplace. And bearing in mind, some of these companies are operating retail establishments in urban areas that have been directly impacted by these protests. And it's also trying to frame that for other stakeholder groups, both inside and outside the company. And I would point out something that I think we've seen more and more in recent years, but which has really come to the fore in these protests as well, which is these are global companies. They have global brands to tend. And as these protests in the U.S. get replicated in dozens of countries around the world that have been expressing both solidarity with the U.S. protest movement, as well as critiquing you know, similar issues in their own countries around police treatment of minority communities. I think that offers these global brands, or at least increases the incentive of these companies to ensure that they do have globally consistent messaging in terms of their position on, on these issues. And it's absolutely the case that this might be uncomfortable for many companies to take a stand on what is a very sensitive social issue, uh, certainly here in the U.S., but perhaps because of their global footprint, perhaps because of their global consumer base, I think we are seeing them increasingly lead governments in many ways in terms of trying to respond to these types of movements. And certainly this is something that is being demanded of their consumers, of their employees, of their shareholders, and of other stakeholders in the business. I think what we're going to do now is take advantage of this podcast's global footprint. And I'm going to open up the mic to Pratyush Rao. Tell us a little bit about what the state of activism and unrest was in your region prior to the pandemic coming crashing down on all of us. As, as Jonathan just mentioned, the U.S. is in a state of heightened sort of combustion. India, on the other hand, has actually seen an almost a pause in activism since March when Prime Minister Modi imposed a stringent nationwide lockdown. But prior to that, since December, we had we saw some of the largest and most concerted sort of protests against the government of Prime Minister Modi around a citizenship act that he sought to introduce which sought to grant an accelerated path to Indian citizenship to non-Muslim illegal migrants from three neighboring countries, 
while at the same time unveiling a separate exercise to identify and potentially deport illegal migrants, many of whom were Muslims currently residing in India. And together, these measures were in many ways seen as having a strong impact on the very soul of India as a, as a secular country. And, and we saw uh, protests erupt across the country in major Indian cities, be it Delhi, Mumbai, Hyderabad, Chennai. Uh, and we saw a pitch battle essentially between supporters of these measures. Uh, so Hindu nationalists who were supporting these measures versus secularists who, on the other hand, wanted the status quo to be preserved. Uh, these protests kind of began in early December, but kind of ran well into March when the onset of the lockdown as a result of the, the pandemic completely brought this to a standstill. So it's only a pause. We've not really seen this completely go away. So there is a strong chance that this might come back later this year, as in when the economy opens up. Pratyush, before we talk a little bit about what's going to happen after lockdown conditions are relaxed and, and after economic activity returns. Tell us a little bit about the position of Indian companies in this climate. Are they sitting quietly on the sidelines hoping this all goes away? Are they being pulled into these debates? Do they have a voice? Are they politicized? Uh, what's the interaction between the activist community and the business community? So that is a very pertinent question, Chuck. The most companies, when they're looking at investment opportunities, let's say in a market like India, would traditionally consider risk factors like, you know, economic risks, uh, regulatory risks, contract risks, or even traditional aspects of political risks like political stability of the government. However, as these pitched ideological and social battles on a fairly sensitive and polarizing issues such as identity, culture, citizenship and nationalism intensify, our view definitely is that companies will increasingly need to understand the political and cultural nuances that may shape their operation environment, as well as overall investment experience. And to be fair, we, we have seen them paying more attention to them. So for instance, during the protests that we saw play out from December 2019 through to March, a lot of our clients wanted tactical operational advice around the safety of their personnel and assets in major Indian cities, including details of protest sites, protesters' intent capability to target commercial assets, but also wanted more kind of strategic advisory and scenario planning pieces around both the potential for sustained activism through 2020, including the political, legislative and social drivers for the same. And, and that really has been a significant shift that we are now seeing amongst our clients. Patrick, when Indian citizens come back out of their homes and back out onto the streets and, and, and return a little bit to economic activity, which, by the way, appears to be extremely difficult in India right now because of all of the contradictions between you know, lockdown re requirements and regulations and restrictions at the federal level and then among India's states. But do you anticipate that the pandemic itself is going to change the nature of activism in India, either by becoming an issue or by changing the way people express themselves in public? I think what the, the current pandemic is going to do is to shift the focus, which has predominantly been on social and ideological issues, to more bread and butter issues. What this 
A pandemic has essentially exposed is deep economic inequalities that have persisted for quite a while, but which have been exacerbated as a result of the pandemic. Nothing epitomizes this more than the exodus of thousands of daily wage workers from India cities to the villages that we saw in the wake of the, the lockdown being imposed. But equally, you've had, I mean, the estimates run to something like 120 to 140 million people losing their jobs in just two and a half months since the lockdown was imposed. So this is like to stoke significant social unrest in the months ahead, because while there will be a bit of a lag between when you might see some of this emerge, but the, the issues are already brewing. And those issues around unemployment, cratering economic growth. I mean, one of the things that brought Modi to power in 2014 was really this promise of being this economic messiah. And if he doesn't deliver on those promises, you know, he, he would be facing significant sort of political headwinds going forward. So so yes, I think the, the character of the the activism and the issues that, that kind of animate people would definitely kind of change with, with the pandemic. Patrice, thank you. Leandro, it was really all economic issues, wasn't it, that brought Santiago to an absolute standstill of protest last year. Um, Give us a snapshot, if you can, of the scene in Chile prior to the pandemic. What was on the agenda? What brought the protesters out into the streets? And, And what was the tension like between the public and its elected government. COVID-19 reached Chile in a moment of substantial social agitation. Demonstrations in Chile, they began in October 2019 due to an increase in in public transportation fares. However, this demonstration quickly evolved into a massive movement that started demanding social improvements in many other issues, such as health policies, pension policies, uh, education policies. So um, this October 19 movement actually was responsible for the eruption of a latent and very significant uh, social discontent that have been happening in the country. And interestingly, uh, the pandemic manage it to reduce popular attendance and the frequency of demonstrations that have been happening in, in Chile, which is something that the government failed to, to do over the past nine months. And, and so is this a bottled up source of pressure waiting to explode again? And that when Chileans feel comfortable going out in the street again, do we go back to where we were? We do face this risk. There is a very complex combination of of existing social grimaces and uh, the socioeconomic impacts of COVID-19 in Chile. And although the pandemic interrupted the unrest temporarily, the socioeconomic impacts have reinforced the, um, the social discontent that have caused the, the October 2019 protest movement. And this is something that we observe in the whole region. For example, the United Nations estimate that almost 29 million people will go into poverty in 2020 in Latin America, and another 16 million people will go into extreme poverty. And this is surely going to to impact um, the, the perspectives of social unrest in the region. And in the case of Chile specifically, we also have a very complex political process going forward. The main example of this is the constitution process that is going to begin in October 2020. Chileans are going to vote on on a new constitution. This is an issue that is quite politically polarized in Chile and is going to fuel 
activism throughout the next uh, two years. So we do expect an increase in social activism and demonstrations in a post-COVID-19 scenario, not only Chile, but in the whole region. One of the common threads facing all of your disparate regions is the fact that the world, by most forecasts, is going to go into a fairly critical economic dip. In some cases, it'll be a severe recession. In some cases, it will be a recovery that probably won't feel as good as 12 months ago, but will be better than it is now. But there'll be different speeds in different parts of the world. But what we're facing is an incredibly difficult economic environment going forward. Just um, jump in, guys. I mean, what is that going to do to the patience, the tolerance, the length of the fuse? Speaking for the U.S., this is a, a recently unprecedented economic crisis for 40 plus million people across the country who have lost their jobs as a result of the COVID-19 downturn. And, and many of those jobs may not be coming back in the same form or at all. And more than even after the global financial crisis, which was nonetheless a very significant recession here in the U.S., which raised considerable concern about the structure and organization of the financial system and of the wider economy, this crisis seems likely to prompt calls here in the U.S. in a political cycle where progressive movements have made very significant gains since 10 plus years ago. I think we're going to see more and more tangible calls for systemic change for reconfiguring, if you like, the nature of that settlement between government and society when it comes to the economy. I mean, there's been some very interesting experiments conducted as a result of COVID-19. You might remember in 2008, 2009, there was a lot of talk about helicopter money. And in the end, most of the stimulus funding went to companies and corporates. But here, you know, as a result of COVID, one of the major stimulus packages deposited hundreds, if not thousands of dollars in individual household bank accounts. It's expanded unemployment insurance. It's provided some ways for people to get certain medical care more easily than they would have done in the past under the U.S. system, which lacks a national state-run health service. So, some of these experiments that have come as a result of COVID on an emergency and crisis basis might be demonstrating to activists, especially those that are concerned about socioeconomic inequality, that not only is there a need for systemic economic change and a recalibration of the economic relationships here, but actually that some of those proposals might even be feasible. And I think we might see this experience being used to document and credentialize activist demands going forward, in particular for saying whether the companies supply it or the government supplies it, we need to have more job security, better benefits, and basically more of a cushion to see us through the next crisis. I think seen from my vantage point on India, it's quite interesting to see that the, the desire for systemic change is actually currently to kind of maintain economic growth. We've kind of seen India register 7-8% economic growth over the years. And now the prediction is that it would register negative growth this year. And so the imperative to kind of sustain and kind of bring back that economic recovery could actually drive 
uh, the potential for increased reforms. So we're talking about structural reforms like land and labor, which again have the potential to stoke significant amount of unrest. So you have a government which is kind of stuck with the lack of a proper fiscal bandwidth to kind of spend its way out of this crisis. So the only other way you can do that is to kind of introduce these long-standing reforms which have been pending, both around liberalizing the labor markets as well as easing of its land acquisition norms, which do have the potential to trigger new rounds of unrest. We've seen that happen in the past. They have largely been localized to different states where companies, our clients have often faced issues around land acquisition, for instance, but this might just aggravate it further. This is an interesting point in Latin America as well, as uh, Latin America has experienced a significant uh, increase in their living standards between 2000 and 2014. The whole region experienced an economic boom, and it has implications uh, nowadays because the Latin American's tolerance with the, the government's failure to provide basic public goods is much reduced right now. And we, we are going to observe a clash between these increased expectations and the adverse economic situation caused by COVID-19. As external shocks go, this has been one of the worst the world has experienced in decades. And, and if anything is going to shake you out of a rut, or if anything is going to break an old habit or an old pattern, it's a global pandemic that has registered deaths in the hundreds of thousands. Pratish, you mentioned pending reforms. And, and Leandro, you mentioned expectations and Jonathan about, you know, some of the changes that have already taken place. And then you think, well, that's great. And there appears to be energy. There appears to be intent. And then you've got to engage with the legislative process. Think a little bit further ahead here. What's the likelihood of a systemic evolution or more rapid change in the way the public sector and the private sector interact? Well, I think it's probably fair to say that, you know, systemic change is always difficult and therefore always unlikely. But when it comes, it often tends to come very quickly and perhaps unexpectedly. And the COVID-19 crisis, and particularly here in the U.S., its convergence with a very difficult political cycle and a very significant and in some ways unprecedented protest movement it does create conditions or at least more pressure for that type of change than we've, we've perhaps seen in over the last 10 years. I mean, we've had each of these issues before. We had a significant economic crisis in 2008, 2009. We had a much less serious global pandemic, H1N1, in 2009. We've had anti-police brutality demonstrations from 2014 to 2016. But this is the first time when those underlying pressures have really been synced together. And they are, of course, occurring against the backdrop in the US and globally of much more substantial movements around issues like climate change, for example. So it does seem to be something of a perfect storm for creating the conditions for systemic change that maybe we haven't seen for most of the last 10 years, if not longer. Okay, so we call Jonathan an optimist. Are there any other optimists out there? Leandro Pratush, optimists among you, realists? How do you shake out on this? Check on the legislative process. I do want to take that point on. There's a bit of a squaring off intent versus capability here in India's case. You have 
You have Modi, who's been in power for six years, fairly unrivaled right now. The political opposition is extremely weak. The question about reforms had always been about intent. I, I think he had the capability to kind of press ahead if he wanted to. I think what the current situation has done, though, given the lack of other levers, your traditional levers like the fiscal bandwidth, etc., to kind of you know spend your way out of the crisis, that doesn't exist in Modi's case right now. Some of the measures have been spoken about in the past. We've spoken about privatization of SOEs, for instance. The land and labor ones have been bugbears for quite a while. I do want to kind of highlight what certain state governments have done in just recent weeks. All three of them governed by the BJP, uh, which is India's governing party, Modi's party. They've kind of completely done away with the applicability of labor laws for the next three years. Think of it like a tax break, but except that the labor laws won't apply for foreign companies, domestic companies for three whole years. That's kind of going on the other extreme. And I think that's where the real issue is, because it's maintaining a balance between sort of worker protection versus kind of easing bureaucratic hurdles for companies. And when states go the other direction, you do kind of create newer avenues for the the views of workers, but equally exposing companies to reputational risks across their supply chain in some of these states. So the intent is there because of external circumstances, but uh, we got to see how this plays out. But I don't think the, the legislative issue is a problem specifically from an Indian point of view. Leandro, do we put you in the column of optimist or realist or pessimist? Give us a final word from your region about how you see the outlook going forward. Has Latin America been shocked by the COVID pandemic and will things be measurably different on the way out? I'm more of a pessimist. In Brazil, for example, uh, we have seen that uh, President Jair Bolsonaro's controversial and to some extent anti-scientific approach towards the pandemic has uh, undermined his relationship with Congress, which will surely impact the likelihood of the approval of any economic reforms the president may have. And I would like to mention as well the increased government interventionism in the economy. This is particularly the case of Chile. We have been seeing that the Chilean government is increasingly inclined to change established legal frameworks in order to appease demonstrators and to ease social discontent. For example, we have seen the government uh, last year pressuring private healthcare providers to not adjust their tariffs. The government also changed the legal framework for energy companies in order to freeze the tariff. So as the socioeconomic impacts of COVID-19 develop in the region, these regulatory risks are really on the rise here. It really sounds like we could devote an entire discussion to regulation and government intervention, but perhaps that's a topic of a separate conversation. I'd like to thank Leandro Lima in Sao Paulo. Welcome, Chuck. I'll be glad to be part of the panel again in the future. Jonathan Wood in Washington, D.C. Always a pleasure. And Pratush Rao in Delhi. Many thanks. A pleasure being on the show, Chuck. That's all for this episode of The Global Insight. Stay updated with new episodes of The Global Insight every other week by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as our four-part series on regional risks, dropping June 22nd in conjunction with the relaunch of RiskMap 2020, our flagship annual forecast of political and security risk. You can follow all our analysis and find out how Control Risks helps build businesses that are secure, compliant, and resilient at controlrisks.com. Bye for now.